Welcome to The Lead from New Lines Magazine. I'm Amy Ferris-Rotman, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. We are approaching the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. On February 24th, Russian forces entered Ukraine by land, air, and sea, sparking the worst conflict Europe has witnessed since World War II. With me today is Olesya Hromychuk, a Ukrainian historian, theatre maker, and director of the Ukrainian Institute London. In her book, The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister, she tells the story of her brother Valodya, who was killed on the front line in eastern Ukraine in 2017. Olesya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me, Amy. First of all, I wanted to say that I was very moved by your memoir. Um, it was, it's a lovely book. It, it was first published in 2021, updated in 2022 to include your thoughts um, on the current invasion. And I found it such a personal, beautiful and quite lyrical tribute to your brother. I was also really touched by in your prologue where you write that his death and the battle he was fighting was largely unnoticed by people in Western Europe. And of course, now everyone in the world knows about the war in Ukraine and about Russia's hostilities and what's happening. How has it been for you to see and now know that thousands, maybe tens of thousands of sisters are going through what you went through? Thank you so much for, for, for that question and also for, for your very kind words about the book. It, it, it always means so much of, to me to hear the reader's response and, you know, how how um, the book speaks to, to people in different ways. So thanks for that. Yeah, so the first version of the book, um, when I wrote it originally, I wrote it in order to uh, try and uh, raise awareness about this forgotten war. At the time, it was entirely forgotten. Um, whenever I spoke about the war in Eastern Ukraine um, and occupation of Crimea, people were surprised that it's still you know, a topic for discussion, that the war was still ongoing, that people were still being killed at the front line, both military and civilians. So for me, it was was really, really important to both process my own trauma through writing, the, the trauma that my family was going through, but also to raise awareness about this war and through this universal story, try and get people to pay more attention about what was going on, um, you know, at, at, at the end of Europe that doesn't get an awful lot of news coverage. Um, um, normally, regularly. Um, when I was updating uh, the edition before the publication of the second edition, so after the start of the full-scale invasion, um, I guess I really wanted to try and reflect on why it took uh, a full-scale war for the world to actually discover Ukraine, why it took um, you know, the decision of the Kremlin to try and destroy the country for the rest of us to actually realize that the country exists, that it has its own identity, a very clear sense of self, that it has enormous, diverse literature that we've completely dismissed for many, many years, um, and also why it took such scale of human loss uh, for the political leadership to finally begin to understand what Russia is, that Russia is capable of inflicting that kind of brutality, a brutal um, attack, aggression on another sovereign uh, state, something that uh, was entirely dismissed for the first eight years of this war. Um, and another reason for me to... Um, 
um, and another reason I had for for you know the updated sections that I wrote uh, for the second edition of the book was to try and encourage all of us to think how the situational interest that emerged in Ukraine can be turned into structural changes, so that in the future you know we don't go back to business as usual and start ignoring places like Ukraine and focus again on imperial centers like Moscow, but we actually keep them. Um, in mind as places that have so much to offer, they have such valuable knowledge um, to to share with the rest of the world, the sort of knowledge that has been dismissed for far too long. Do you ever feel angry that it took this long for the world to, to pay attention? Um, I, I think there's a there's a, a mix of complicated feelings that I feel. Um, I suppose sense of responsibility too, because I am part of the international community. I haven't lived in Ukraine for more than two decades, so I, I also take responsibility for you know the way we've communicated um, information about Ukraine um, in academia, outside of academia, the general public. Uh, yeah, sense of frustration for sure. <laughs> the sense of, as uh, one of my colleagues put it, you know. Of, of being a sort of one of modern day Cassandras. And there were many of us, you know, when we were talking about something that, that we knew was happening that was of, of vital importance for the world to notice, but the world didn't want to notice. Um, but I think the most important thing for me now is to see how we can, uh, how we can uh, correct our mistakes and how we can um, ensure that we don't repeat them in the future. Yes, I noticed a lot of people now are talking about something that you mentioned and wrote about in your book, which is this the international community's insistence on expressing, quote, deep concern um, and then effectively doing nothing um, or actually uh, continuing to trade with Russia and to treat Russia as an equal player, therefore encouraging Moscow's actions. How do we make sure that this stage of deep concern does not return, that we do make sure that things change? This is a very good question. I, I think one thing for us to uh, realize now is inaction is not a neutral decision. Uh, by not doing something in response to violation of uh, of international law, as, as, as Russia violated it uh, by annexing, by occupying Crimea and beginning aggression in eastern Ukraine, uh, by not responding to it um, appropriately, we have enabled uh, the escalation. And I think um, it's very important for uh, political leadership to uh, reflect on those first eight years and to also take responsibility for that inaction and for the decisions that were taken and not taking, taken in response to uh, Russia's actions. Um, so I think once that soul searching happens, it will be a lot easier for us to um, to to respond appropriately now, because even a year into full scale war, there's still so many delays uh, with the provision of help that is absolutely necessary for Ukraine, um, economic, humanitarian, but most importantly, military help that Ukrainians keep asking for. And it is being delivered, but it is being delivered with delays. And each such delay um, results in absolutely unnecessary loss of life. What are these delays about, in, in your opinion? I mean, I know what they're about officially. I mean, do you think this is something that's left over from the Soviet era about the West being afraid of engaging with a nuclear armed Russia? Or is it something much bigger than that? Perhaps this question should be directed to those people who, who take those decisions um, and cause those delays. Uh, in my view, part of it was this desire to appease Moscow. 
And I, I would like to think that now it's very clear that appeasement doesn't work with Moscow, that it creates the opposite uh, outcome because um, appeasement is perceived as a sign of weakness and it actually encourages escalation in the long run. Um, part of it, I think, is response to Russia's nuclear blackmail uh, that it's been using very successfully mm. um, against the rest of the world. And again, here we need to think whether you know we want to reward war criminal for um, for committing war crimes. Um, but but that is that is how I see uh, one of the reasons for the or several reasons for the delays. I suppose another reason was not perceiving Ukrainian voice as a credible voice, not trusting it with its its own experience. Um, I think that is changing now, um, but it's 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 taken a lot of time and an awful lot of um, loss uh, for Ukrainians for it to change and for for Ukrainian voice to actually be heard as a credible voice. You talked about being part of the international community, and I'd like to think back to 24th of February 2022, the day that Russian forces rolled across the border. Do you remember when, where you were when it happened? Were you in London? Yes, yes. I'll never forget that night, as I'm sure all Ukrainians will, will remember it um, uh, in, in, and, and relive it in their worst nightmares. Um, I was in London. I was awake. Uh, I was finishing um, an article that I was supposed to submit by the morning. I had come back from a rally um, outside of the Russian embassy um, and, uh, yeah, and I was working. So uh, because I was awake at three o'clock in the morning, I actually saw the start of the full-scale invasion sort of um, unfold live, um, mostly through my Twitter feed. Uh, journalists who have been who were based in, in Kiev at the time were tweeting saying that the explosion started, that they could hear the explosions right, you know, behind them. And my immediate response was to get in touch with those people um, that I, my friends who I knew were in Ukraine at the time, wake them up. And also those who had families um, in Kyiv and elsewhere in Ukraine to to tell them that, that as we put it, it started, you know, that phrase uh, that that was being used at the time it started um and so they can you know put arrangements in place to try and get people into safety and so on i described this uh, moment uh, in one of the chapters of the book the chapter that's called the enemy it was a it was a difficult night it was nowhere near as difficult as it was for the people who were in ukraine um but what i remember most about that night is after the moment of shock came um, the desire to be as efficient as possible, to put all my efforts into making sure that the world understands what this war is about, that it finally wakes up from the sort of slumber that we've lived in for eight years and helps Ukraine, um, first of all, defend itself um, efficiently, but also uh, win the war as, as, as quickly as it is possible. It must have felt quite surreal for you, especially after losing your brother. N not necessarily, because we were all prepared for an escalation. Um, we expected it to happen. My brother was the first one who warned me of it when he returned to the front line after his first deployment. Um, I was sort of urging him to try and um, you know, give civilian life a go again. Uh, but he said, you don't understand it. This was 2017. He said, you don't understand. This is, 
uh, a European war that happened to start in eastern Ukraine, he was absolutely certain that it was going to escalate. And frankly, all of my veteran friends said the same thing. It was just a matter of time. Um, but we were pre preparing for uh, some kind of escalation. Perhaps few of us were ready for the scale of brutality that we did see um, uh, perpetrated by uh, the Russian troops once they scaled the uh, once they staged the full scale invasion. And I must say the performance of the Ukrainian military, but also um, the reaction by Ukraine as a whole, its defiance, its resilience has completely amazed the international community, the world at large. And um, I mean, as an historian, I would love to hear a little bit about the historical context of this moment, if you could. I mean, to me, it feels like there's been hundreds of years of oppression and repression of Ukrainian culture by Moscow. And this has now burst into the open with this extremely violent invasion. Yes, the fact that uh, the world was surprised to see this defiance, um, for me, served as evidence that the world didn't really know an awful lot about Ukraine, uh, because it shouldn't have been surprising to see the people of Ukraine to be defined and resilient in the situation where essentially, you know, another state is depriving them from um, their agency, subjectivity, their ability to build the state, independent state, which they chose uh, in 1991, but also, of course, the generations before that fought uh, to have. Uh, to deny their desire to, uh, you know, to build democratic, uh, prosperous future. And they were not going to have any of it. Uh, they were not going to allow uh, the Russian troops to, um, um, you know, to force them into occupation that we've already seen uh, for eight years in parts of eastern Ukraine and in Crimea, where um, your rights are completely uh, disrespected, human rights uh, uh, are not uh, respected at all, where, you know, anybody could be abducted, uh, could be jailed, uh, could be kidnapped, your business, your flat, uh, it can be taken away, um, and so on. So, of course, Ukrainians had uh, a lot to lose, and they were prepared to fight uh, to fight um, for for their statehood, for the country, and for, um, you know, for the future that they imagined for Ukraine. And you're right, um, it, this is based not just on the recent history, the last just over 30 years of renewed independence, and especially the last uh, nine years since the Maidan revolution, where Ukrainians really, uh, you know, demonstrated their choice very, very clearly that they wanted to move away from close ties with Russia and suddenly towards Europe, and they would not tolerate authoritarian regimes. But it is also based on, on several centuries of knowing how repressive Moscow is towards uh, those who rebel against its uh, oppressive rule and um, based on the sort of culture that shapes Ukrainians into who they are. Defiant culture, culture that the values freedom above everything else. So that actually brings me to my next question, which is about the Ukrainian Institute, a charity in London of which you are the director. So it was established in the 1970s under very different circumstances when the Soviet Union was officially atheist and it had a Christian background. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're what you're working with now? 
Yes, uh, I, I will start with, with the 1970s, as you mentioned, uh, because that's when it was set up by Archbishop Joseph Slipui. And I frequently think back to that moment um, to seek um, encouragement in, in that moment, because uh, you know this is someone who suffered uh, repression uh, by the Soviet authorities. He was in the Gulag, he came out of the Gulag, and he decided to set up these centers for uh, you know, the study of Ukraine um, around the world and London was one of those centers in the 1970s. So before it was obvious that the Soviet Union was going to collapse. So this is a man who had a, a vision, uh, a, a powerful vision of the future in which the Soviet Union would no longer exist and Ukraine would exist and people would be interested in learning about Ukraine. And it's that power of that vision that inspires me today and uh, you know reminds me that it's it's really, really important at the moment to think of the future far beyond uh, our lives uh, and far beyond the horrors that we are witnessing at the moment, um, because I, I guess that is how we will that future into being. So in some ways, the, the mission of the Institute hasn't really changed since those days. Its, uh, its purpose is to tell uh, people about Ukraine. Um, but I suppose what's changed, especially over the last year, is the scale of work uh, that, that we do. Uh, we've noticed that people are really hungry for knowledge about Ukraine, the sort of knowledge that is both accessible and reliable. Um, and that is what we're trying to um, to offer. Um, we also focusing on building bridges. So what I mentioned earlier, trying to turn this situational interest into structural change to enable um, institutions here in the UK and uh, institutions in Ukraine, but also individuals to, to establish connections that will uh, bring uh, results in the future, to work more closely together, to get to know each other really well. Um, and we're also aiming to shape the conversation about Ukraine. So often over the last year, I was being asked very similar questions by journalists um, that were based um, essentially on uh, Kremlin propaganda. While the journalists were trying to debunk that propaganda, they were still referring to, to the same uh, to the same statements that were issued, say, by Putin. Like you know, something like Putin says that Ukrainians are not a real nation. Is there any truth in that? Uh, and at some point, I, um, I, you know, I realized that we need to ask different questions. Uh, so that is what uh, the institute is trying to do. We try to um, create a space where new questions can be asked about Ukraine that will actually reveal more about what Ukraine is rather than how Russia is getting it wrong, if you see what I mean. Uh, and of course, we're delighted to see a huge increase in, uh, in the desire to learn the Ukrainian language, Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian history. So we've been... Um, We've been uh, offering those courses as well, and they're doing really well. And since uh, the arrival of uh, Ukrainians displaced by this war, we've also been offering um, English language classes to, to displaced Ukrainians too. So uh, a huge uh, um, expansion of the work uh, of the Institute uh, at the moment. And with this interest by people in the West to learn Ukrainian language and to learn about Ukrainian literature, are we also seeing fresh translations of Ukrainian authors in the midst of this war. We are, and I'm really delighted to see that. Um, I, I've always championed translations of Ukrainian literature, both 
classics and contemporary, fantastic contemporary literature. And, and I can finally see that happening at the moment. Um, so yes, um, definitely keep an eye uh, out on new titles. I mean, the one I'm really excited about is Lesia Ukrainka, Father uh, Siekle writer. Um, her Cassandra play has just been recently translated by Nina Murray and has been uh, published by uh, Harvard um, University. So do uh, get your copy of it as, as soon as you can. But also um, fantastic translations of works by Serhii Jadan, by Olena Stiashkina, contemporary writers, uh, Oksana Zabushko and others. And um, a lot of those uh, specifically discuss uh, Russia's war in Ukraine and are very recent, uh, discuss very recent experiences. Um, so again, if you want to learn about Ukraine and about how Ukrainians are experiencing this war, this is um, an excellent way to do so. Absolutely. I look forward to those. Um, and it leads us to my next question, which is about what I believe we're witnessing right now, definitely in Ukraine, but in other countries that once formed the Soviet Union, which is this decolonization, which seems to be happening in the former Soviet space. By decolonization, I mean ridding the Russian dominance over countries that were once in its sphere of influence. I mean, would you agree with this? Is this even an accurate description to call it this? Yes. Um, again, this is something that should have happened uh, a, a long time ago. I mean, let's remember that um, when the empires collapsed in after the in the aftermath of the First World War, um, the Russian Empire did collapse, but the Soviet Union managed to uh, regain control of most of the territories and essentially functioned as a as an empire itself, although it pretended not to be uh, a repressive empire, um, of course. Uh, but it but it worked as as an empire totally um, uh, denying uh, expression of any um, um, self-expression to to nationalities that it um, um, engulfed in its union. Um, so this, and then, and then when the Soviet Union collapsed, this process of decolonization never really happened um, in Russia. It started to happen elsewhere. We certainly saw a lot of discussions uh, about the colonial relationship with Moscow in Ukraine in the 1990s. Um, I mean, there are fantastic works by Tamara Hundorova, by Oksana Zabushko, whom I already mentioned, um, by um, others uh, that discussed this, but unfortunately, they largely went unnoticed especially um, by the readers who were not able to read it, uh, read those works in Ukrainian. Again, this is coming back to the question of translation, what, what is made available to readership outside of, outside of Ukraine. Uh, so this is now a renewed discussion of decolonization in Ukraine, which I think is a necessary discussion to be had and one that I think is going to have influence elsewhere as well. Um, I have, uh, uh, I feel slightly uncomfortable using this uh, um, term post-Soviet space or former Soviet space uh, because um, it's probably not the most helpful description of a very, very large region with very different uh, national groups uh, that are simply being lumped together because of their colonial relationship with Moscow. Uh, so we're defining them um, through their uh, oppressive past, uh, maybe we sh maybe now it's it's time to 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 drop that uh, description of uh, of the region. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and I'm often searching for new ways to describe countries that were under Moscow's influence. What can we call it, or do you think we should just 
focus on each country as an individual country. Yeah, I would I would encourage us to to decenter our view of the region and and you know stop focusing on Moscow either as a, you know a, a center uh, of of an empire that you know some of so, some observers have admired for a long time or or as a as a repressive center of the empire. Let's decenter our focus. Let's shine light on those cultures that have been left behind for so long. Uh, I think if we want to decolonize our own understanding of the region that is the first thing we need to do just going to talk about something a little bit different here which i'm very interested in and i've heard you talk about before which is the changing gender dynamics in ukraine as a result of russia's invasion i'm really interested in this because um well i'm a woman but also because this is something i've reported on um and something which is very much at odds with a lot of the stereotypes that people have about ukraine and so what we're seeing is a complete shift correct me if i'm wrong on the ground about women joining the military we're seeing women become heads of households we're seeing more women in government do you think that this shift is something that will permanently change Ukraine for the future and for the good? Uh, thank you for that question. I will uh, give you an example of uh, what is happening in the Ukrainian armed forces, because that is something I've been monitoring for some time. I mean, essentially since 2014, I uh, tried to study participation of women in the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, so um, at the moment, there are 60,000 uh, women in the Ukrainian armed forces and 41,000 of those are service women. Um, the rest are civilians uh, working for the armed forces. And uh, around 5,000 are in direct combat. Uh, and the, the figures have uh, increased um, substantially since 2014, but even since the start of the full-scale invasion. So we can clearly see that women are making a choice uh, to join the armed forces as a, as a way to uh, protect their statehood, uh, as the way to uh, contribute to Ukraine's victory. Uh, in this uh, in this war that Russia is waging against them, and w for me, one of the most interesting things about this phenomenon is that so much has changed uh, in the way that women experience the service in the armed forces. So, when in 2014, quite a lot of them joined um, the army, their uh, position uh, at the front line was uh, complicated. It was often uh, on a semi-legal basis because so many um, positions were uh, not open to women. This is a complicated legacy of labor law that that is essentially that was essentially still a, um, the legacy of the Soviet uh, labor law. And what they managed to achieve is to. Um, um, explain the problems uh, to society, but also to um, political leadership and uh, demand that their rights are uh, improved. Um, so they managed to achieve the first wave of uh, uh, restrictions being lifted in 2016 um, and then uh, subsequently um, in different waves since. And now women can uh, join the armed forces uh, in the same way as men can, provided they, uh, they are qualified to do so, they are trained and qualified to do so. Um, they are not obliged, uh, th there is no conscription uh, for, for women, uh, unlike in the case of men, but should they wish to join the armed forces, they are able to do so uh, based on their um, 
professional skills and not being hindered by their gender. And for me, that shows you how much can change in Ukraine. Uh, often these are grassroots changes, uh, pressure from a civil society, from uh, groups such as, in this case, a women veterans movement that was very powerful, very uh, vocal uh, and very persuasive. And the other change which is very telling is that uh, the women who have joined the armed forces are not being perceived in gendered ways in the way that they used to be um, before. So I noticed uh, headlines in 2014, 15, 16 that were highly gendered that would speak of women as, um, you know, even women took up arms to defend the country or she cut her beautiful long hair off and went to the front line or even in the trenches she has beautiful manicure, that kind of stuff. You know, you can you can imagine the sort of tone. Now I don't see those headlines. Now I see uh, women being celebrated and, and congratulated for their achievements as service women because of their professionalism. Uh, in the same way as 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 men are so that's a for me that's a wonderful change and um is it going to last i sh i really hope so um i have good reasons to believe that it is going to last that uh we won't see the um, the sort of uh change to kind of business as usual after victory after the war has ended because there will be so many uh, women in society with that experience. And as long as we highlight that experience, I think uh, we will uh, be in a very powerful position to uh, build on that and to ensure gender equality, obviously not just in the armed forces, but in, in society more widely. You talked about victory just now and how this war will end. And I wanted to finish by asking you your thoughts on the future. I, I know you're not a politician, but uh, how does this war actually end? I mean, in your book, you did speak about justice, which I think is missing, actually, from the discussions we see out there at the moment. Yes. First of all, I'd like to remind us that it's um, up to us how quickly it ends. Um, because Ukrainians have proved it to the rest of the world that they are determined to ensure uh, that they win this war, but they do need our support, economic, uh, humanitarian, military support. And we in our peaceful cities shouldn't just sit back and watch this war as if it's, you know, um, an episode of, uh, of drama on TV. We should remember that we also have agency and we can also exercise that agency in ensuring um, that the, um, the help that is needed uh, for Ukraine to win this war is delivered um, in a timely manner. And um, that solidarity, uh, which I think really surprised the Kremlin, solidarity in the democratic world stays strong. Um, and that all of us are just as invested in Ukraine's victory as Ukrainians are. Um, secondly, yes, of course, victory uh, for me, as for all Ukrainians, uh, means restoration of territorial integrity, uh, including Crimea. Because uh, I, I often hear people say to me, "Why don't you just surrender uh, parts of the, you, you know, parts of your territory that Putin wants to keep?" And it's uh, it's naive to think that. Um, rewarding a criminal for the crimes that he's committing will somehow uh, ensure peace. Um, also, it's uh, important to remember that uh, if Crimea 
until Crimea is deoccupied, um, until it is liberated, it will continue being used as a platform to launch further attacks against Ukraine. So actually, uh, delaying the occupation of Crimea is prolonging this war, not ensuring that it finishes sooner. Um, and finally, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, justice is key to lasting peace. Uh, because until there's justice, until war criminals are punished, uh, until there are reparations, uh, there will not be any um, possibility to see this peace uh, last. And again, here uh, we can all contribute to uh, ensuring that uh, justice uh, is uh, administered um, and that war criminals are punished. This year will be the first anniversary of the invasion, but next year... 2024 will mark another very sad anniversary, an entire decade of Russia's military aggression in Ukraine. This is a painfully long time to be fighting, and it's no small thing that Ukrainians have managed to hold on to both their hopes and their values during these 10 years. Do you ever worry that the toll of the war will ever become so great that Ukrainians, even Ukrainians, lose sight of that? Ukrainians have no choice but to win uh, this war. Uh, because the alternative is um, uh, is not the one that we can accept. Um, and I think um, it's very important that the rest of us don't succumb to war fatigue or Ukraine fatigue. To be fair, I haven't seen um, examples of that wherever I travel. I mean, I just returned from Australia. I've been to the States just before that. I travel around continental Europe quite a lot. And I see overwhelming and very touching uh, support of uh, the general population for Ukraine and investment in Ukrainian victory, uh, which encourages, uh, for sure, you know, encourages people like me, but it also encourages people in Ukraine to keep on fighting. I guess what I would like to ask all of us to think is what sort of future we want uh, for the democratic world as a whole. Um, and uh, remember that freedom is fragile. We saw, we saw it threatened in Ukraine by an aggressive uh, neighboring state. So in order to protect the freedoms that we enjoy in the democratic world, we need to make sure that we support Ukraine um, and that we uh, help it win this war as soon as possible, uh, because it has implications for, for all of us wherever we are in the world. Um, I I am optimistic at the moment uh, in terms of uh, you know seeing the solidarity around the world last. Um, I feel that um, there's now now that Ukraine has been discovered, uh, it it is also inspiring all of us uh, to think hard about what sort of future we want to live in and what we are prepared to sacrifice uh, for freedom. I feel like that's a very good point for us to end this. Alessia Khromachuk, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me and for uh, discussing Ukraine. This has been The Lead by New Lines magazine. You can find Alessia on Twitter at O Khromachuk and by her book, The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister at All Good Bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Amy Ferris-Rockman. Thank you all for joining us.